We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall. Welcome to The Meaningful Life. My witness this week is Kate Daigle, who is an eating disorder and body image specialist with a master's degree from the Counselling Psychology and Counsellor Education Programme at the University of Colorado in Denver, USA. She's also the author of The Clinical Guide to Fertility, Motherhood and Eating Disorders and is the mother of a five-year-old daughter. I'm interested in this topic because I think diet culture is so widespread that we're all beginning to have a complex relationship with food. I worry, how can we have a more meaningful life if we're putting all our energy into how we look or forever worrying about our weight? It's not all negative. If you have an eating disorder, I believe the journey to recovery involves the sort of learning that can unlock the door to meaning. So I think we're going to generally try and investigate our relationship with food. Welcome, uh, Kate. Let's start off just talking a little bit about your own personal journey, because when you were 13, you started to have disordered eating patterns. What were you doing? Well, when I was 13, uh, starting in middle school, starting into high school, really focusing on peers and wanting to be accepted as many girls and boys that age do, and just feeling very insecure about my own self, my body image, noticing peers starting to talk about their bodies as well and dieting and wanting to change things. And that in combination with having anxiety underneath all of it, I coped with that through restricting what I was eating. I had the idea, as many people at that age do, that by cutting out certain foods or limiting your calories, that you could lose weight. And you mentioned diet culture has these messages for all of us. Perhaps you will be happier. Perhaps you will fit in more. Perhaps people will like you more. Those were very important to me at that time. I wasn't aware what I was doing consciously, but subconsciously, I felt like a sense of control that I could exert at the time that quickly got out of control, as you might imagine, and spiraled for many years. It can be actually, I think, particularly for young women, very bonding as everybody sits there and looks at their lunch and say, you know, I've got this and oh, I wouldn't eat that. And it sort of becomes a way of being in the gang. Did you find that? (laughs) Uh, Yes. And unfortunately, I don't think it really stops at 13. Women and talk about diets, their bodies, how much they hate their bodies. It's sort of like banter, you could say, and a a common bond. A bit like the English talk about the weather. (laughs) (laughs) Something you always know you could talk about. There's always like common ground, I guess. Somebody will get it, (laughs) have something to say. Yeah. So that that just spiraled for me pretty quickly. And how did it become a problem for you? Uh, Well, it started out as restrictive eating, you could say anorexia, and then as with many eating disorders, they can shift and they can change. So for me, that started turning into bulimia, probably about a year into it, where I started to binge and purge. 
it's hard to describe how exactly it feels unless you've been through it, but it's almost a release or like a feeling of bliss when you're binging and purging, much as a, a drug addiction or alcohol addiction might give you a high temporarily, then it becomes out of control, something that you can't stop. And again, for me, it was a coping mechanism of trying to cope with life that started to feel a little bit out of control for me as I navigated social pressures, but also high, very intense academic pressures at the same time. So you felt a huge need to be successful at school and at university, did you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just put a lot of pressure on myself. Did your family notice what was going on? I kept it very hidden. I think they definitely knew there was a problem and they wanted me to talk to a counselor pretty early on. And I did go, but I wasn't ready. I wasn't open. And that's the key for people is you have to be wanting that yourself. You can't force someone. So they definitely tried to help me, but I was very secretive. And I went off to college and then they didn't really know what was going on at that time. But in college is when I myself personally decided I was done living that type of lifestyle. It's very shameful very secretive. So what was the turning point? Uh, just rock bottom, I guess you could say. Luckily, I didn't have any severe health deterioration from this. It was mental health. And socially, I was very isolated because my eating disorder was basically my best friend, my partner, my everything. And that was really devastating. So I did find a counselor in college. Uh, this is sort of how I got on track to do what I do now. She had had her own experience with an eating disorder. And for me, that knowledge, that understanding was so meaningful. And to see that she had recovered gave me hope that someday I could. And it wasn't all the you know magic from there on, but that really started me on my process of being committed to recovering on my own. What did you start to do? Give me a picture of what you were doing as you started to work with this counsellor? Well, first and foremost, building a trusting relationship with her where she tried to see in me the positives and the beautiful things that I was having. I, I distinctly remember her asking me, you know, tell me some things that you like about yourself. Tell me some things that are positive. And at that time, when I was very early in this, I couldn't. And that was very sad. <laughs> uh, it just would cry and cry and cry. So, for her to see those parts and help bring them out in me, that trusting relationship was first and foremost. And then I got into group therapy. I did a lot of reading and journaling and talking, opening up more about this with people. And that, you know, it took a while, it took years, but I stopped the behaviors and really focused on getting in touch with myself and figuring out who I am without this eating disorder. It's a, it's a beautiful and hectic and chaotic process all wrapped into one. Do you remember talking to one of your friends the first time and telling them what had been going on? Yeah, I remember just feeling the relief of finally not having to hold this this secret. And, and ultimately, some of my friends told me, yeah, we knew there was something going on, but we didn't know how to talk to you about it. And we were really worried. And for me, that felt a little bit guilty. Like they didn't feel like they could talk to me about it. And also just a little bit sad that they couldn't bring it up more. It's a complex situation. If you confront someone about an eating disorder and they're not ready to talk about it, there's a lot of denial there. And is there a difference between talking about it and confronting? 
I often feel that the language goes to the extreme version and confronting sort of, you know, I'm going to sit you down and you're not going to go here, leave this point until you do X, Y, Z. And Mm -hmm. talking is, you know, I'm aware that there might be a problem and I notice that you don't like eating at the same time as other people or whatever it might be that you've noticed. Yeah, you're right there. I don't think confrontation is is often the uh, most effective tool. You know, interventions in general can can be effective, but with an eating disorder, it's again, I think the person has to be ready to talk about it and just being there for them and saying, "I'm here for you." You know, if if you want to talk about anything, but not like pushing too hard because that can just I feel like cause someone to backpedal and, and go further into fear about giving it up. Because it is a relationship that you have to get rid of. So that's a very big challenge for someone. Explain to me that it's a relationship you have to get rid of. That's not something I've <laughs> thought of before. Yeah. So many people describe their eating disorders as, again, like a partner, a best friend, but a very toxic relationship, you know. But one that is always there for you is always going to have some kind of effect. Like I said, whether it's binging and purging, restrictive eating on that whole spectrum, there's some kind of high or relief or release that you get from using these behaviors. This is what I work a lot with my clients is what is it helping you cope with? What's the underlying like attachment wound or need or fear that this disorder crept up and is like trying to help you kind of meet that in some kind of destructive way. And so while you're working on recovery, it's very terrifying at first, because for me and for many of my clients, it's felt like I have to get rid of this thing, this best friend that I know is not good for me, but has served me and made me feel safe for so many years. People deal with this for years and years and years and years and years before they're really ready to confront it or talk about it, you could say. It's a very complex topic, as you mentioned, but getting rid of the need to hurt yourself or be self-destructive to meet that need. That's like the ultimate recovery perspective. And I think this is really difficult because whereas, you know, we can do without alcohol, even though it's very difficult, (laughs) we can't do without food. It's tied in to our relationship with our mothers, ultimately, because mothers feed you and love and food are sort of very closely linked to each other. So we're dealing with some really deep material, aren't we? Definitely, definitely. You're right. It's it's finding the gray area. It's not black or white. You can't just cut out food. It's reintegrating all foods and not just having safe foods or unsafe foods, but like what foods does your body and do, do you emotionally, mentally actually need and let yourself have? And you're right. It's very tied to love and nourishing and self-care and enjoyment. And on the flip side with an eating disorder, it can be the opposite of that. It can be fear, pain, self-destruction, you know, severe medical issues as well can come from that. So it is, it's very complicated. And one of the things I always say to my clients, I don't work specifically with eating disorders, although I've had clients that do have eating disorders and often my work is actually helping them talk to their partner about it and helping their partner hear it without actually panicking and going up the wall. That's sort of where I meet it. But in general, I find it really helpful to talk about light and shadow, that we can't have 
the light without the shadow. You can't have all the positive, lovely things about food without some of the downsides and the negatives of it as well. And we sort of somehow want to just have one without the other, unfortunately. Yeah, you're right. Life is both (laughs) and not denying or avoiding one or the other. So let's sort of talk a bit about specifics because there are a whole range of different eating disorders. Perhaps you can sort of give us a sense of the breadth of them because when I was looking into this, there were many that I hadn't actually heard of. (laughs) Yes, there's a lot more awareness and you could say more definition since the more current DSM manual. You might be familiar with anorexia nervosa, which is restrictive eating, fear of weight gain, distortion of body image. That's one that most people know. And bulimia, as I mentioned, bulimia nervosa is characterized as binge eating massive amounts of food in short periods of time to the point of feeling uncomfortably full and sick and then purging through throwing up or exercise or laxative abuse. And that one is also commonly known. Binge eating disorder is one of the more recently qualified eating disorders, which is bulimia, meaning binge eating, but there isn't any compensation, no like restrictive eating after. But oftentimes, anorexia or restrictive eating can lead to binge eating because the body cannot sustain in a deprived state for, <laughs> it's not meant to for very long and its natural drive can take over and just want to eat and fill up, fill up, fill up because it's afraid of, of dying, honestly. Mm-hmm. Uh, so those are the three most common that people might have heard of. There's some that are not that you might not find in clinical terms, but orthorexia. Have you heard of that one? No, tell me about that. So it is a obsession with healthy foods and a dependence on like whole foods, clean eating, just healthy foods, diet type foods. And so it's different from anorexia in terms of maybe these folks are not restricting their calories or focused on calories but on like the quality or content of what's in their foods. And it becomes an obsession. That's all they can kind of think about, the only thing that they will eat. Most, I would say most eating disorders are on a spectrum. They're kind of shift from one to another. They don't just stay one type for the whole incidence of it. And they all have the same root, you say? That is my belief that underneath all of these behaviors, while they're one side of the spectrum to the other and look very, very different, they're trying to cope with and deal with an underlying attachment wound or often self-worth, just identity crisis. There's often depression, anxiety, trauma, abuse. Sometimes, often, there's situations co-current with an eating disorder that an eating disorder is helping, I guess you could say, cope with as well. We're putting these in inverted commas, this helping. It's a <laughs> false helper, isn't it? But Well, yeah, that's kind of what I said before. It, it helps to numb or cope or provide some kind of high from that pain temporarily, very temporarily, until it turns inward you know, and, and is self-destructive and leads to shame and guilt and all of the awful, awful feelings. And can it be passed down families from generation to generation? You know, one of my best friends who had a lifelong struggle with food, you know, she was sent to her first diet doctor when she was about 12 years old by her mother who would eat secretly <laughs> away mm-hmm. from the family table, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Is that something you see quite a lot? 
Yes. Uh, recent research has shown that there's genetic predispositions to eating disorders. However, it's not fully just about one factor here. There's environment, you know, behaviors, how uh, food is shown or represented in the family system. Maybe a parent modeling unhealthy eating behaviors can influence a child. And then there's the genetic predisposition, but there's also temperament, meaning folks who are more on the like sensitive, empathetic, perfectionistic, high achieving, those types are a little more vulnerable to eating disorders because of that, as I experienced, internal pressure that they may put on themselves. And this isn't just women, is it? I understand there are more boys and men having eating disorders than ever before. Yes, I believe so. And I also think there's a societal stigma around men having eating disorders that I hope is decreasing. But in you know the past few decades, you could say it's been a woman's issue, quote unquote. And that's not helpful. And that's not even true. It is true that more women struggle with eating disorders than men, but men definitely do. And I hope that they can know that it's okay to talk about that because that's what's needed in order to get through and and find recovery. How do you feel about diet culture? I hate diet culture. To put it bluntly, I, I don't. I can't say that's the whole reason for eating disorders because it's not. But people who go on diets are have a, a higher likelihood of developing eating disorder than people who don't. And again, if one is predisposed in certain ways to maybe developing an eating disorder, and then they go on a diet, that very likely can result in a full blown eating disorder. So a lot of the work that I do is dismantling the diet culture, especially the thin ideal and all of the fat phobia, weight stigma that contributes to people feeling ashamed of just being themselves in their bodies, the way that their bodies feel best. And how do you do that? <laughs> These are all very good and I'm complex questions. I'm asking very questions. deep questions, aren't I? But, <laughs> you know, give, give me some practical things because this message that you know these are good foods and these are bad foods is uh-huh. so prevalent that it sort of sneaks up on us without actually thinking about it. Yeah, right. A lot of this is just subconscious under the surface, but very present. Well, at first, I try to help people, like you're saying, identify it. Like, oh, I didn't even realize I don't let myself eat X, Y, or Z. That's a fear food for me. Or I have this rule that I can only eat every four to five hours or at this certain time, or I can't eat in front of people, just identifying these pieces and even writing them down, talking about them can help bring light to this obsession or this way of living that is actually very restrictive and prohibitive to, like you said, finding meaning, a meaningful life. That I don't believe that that can be possible if you're fully immersed in the diet culture. So practically, it's first about talking about it, bringing awareness and looking at all the ways that these limiting beliefs have shrunken a person's world. And I would say when people do start talking about food in this sort of kind of obsessional sort of kind of way, stepping out of the conversation, I know it's difficult, but it's something that I've tried to do. I mean, I go on retreats from time to time and people get into these obsessions about whole mm-hmm. foods and you know how wonderful this food is because it's ABC. 
I don't feed the conversation and I try and step out of it. I'm obviously at the dinner table, that's a bit harder, but generally I try and step out of that conversation. Yeah, that's another great point. I think diverting the conversation or just not engaging in it, diverting to something more meaningful. I will say that eating disorders are not about food and they are not about what you're actually eating. And so, yes, while food is a component in recovery for sure, talking about food, I don't really do that a lot with my clients because it's not about food. So I try to say, okay, what are we really talking about here? We're talking obsessively about food. What, what, what are we not talking about? Or what are we trying to avoid? Or what else could we be talking about? That's an interesting question. What are we not talking about? What do you discover? Give me some examples of things you discover that people are not talking about. Hmm. Their marriage, how their marriage is doing, how they're dealing with life, challenges in life, how they're really doing. People like to say, well, you know, I did this, I ate this, I wore this, I bought this, the material things. That's again, part of, I feel like diet culture, just culture in general, like talking about what you do, what you have versus how you are, what's going on, how are you doing, what's really going on. That's what they're avoiding talking about, I think. What topics would never come up at the dinner table when you were a child? In my family, you were not allowed to talk about politics, religion, anything controversial. You know, conversation had to be kept nice. <laughs> I think my mine was very open. I don't really remember having any like strict rules about what we could and couldn't talk about. I actually really enjoyed eating as a child. I mean, I always did. I never stopped enjoying eating. It didn't become a problem for me until I was about 13. I just use around the dinner table because you tend to remember those conversations. But Mm -hmm. what were the forbidden topics? We weren't allowed to talk about emotions and feelings. I'm trying to give people a sense of what might not have been talked about. What Mm -hmm. are the topics that you might need to pay attention to? I think similar feelings and vulnerabilities, sensitivities. I was a sensitive child and didn't always know how to express myself. And I don't know. It's hard to navigate that as parents too. How do you, none of us wants to damage our, <laughs> damage our children, huh? you know, and, and, and yet we're all human. And I don't know, I, I might've not felt like I could express certain things. What sort of things wouldn't you be allowed to express, do you think? I don't know, just being sensitive, being insecure, feeling insecure about my body, those types of things. I didn't want to talk about that either. It wasn't pleasant to talk about. And if you had to be a great success, I would have thought failure would be a topic that would not be acceptable to discuss. Yeah, I was in a very rigorous academic schooling, the International Baccalaureate Program. It's basically like going to college in high school. I was among very, very, very smart kids and students. So I naturally think we all compared ourselves to each other. And that definitely fed my eating disorder. I didn't want to be a failure. No, I didn't want to fail at anything ever. But I learned that you have to, and that's okay. We learn from our mistakes and failure. (laughs) Well, yeah, that was a big part of recovery for me. And this is something that you say that I just absolutely love. Instead of saying, oh, I've self-sabotaged, what you say is it's old programming and unhealed wounds. Unpick that for me. I think unpick is a good way to say that because a wound that we have that we don't let heal, we keep picking. We keep picking at it. And that's sort of what an eating disorder, any kind of addiction I feel like does is it's like, wait a minute, don't forget there's this part of you, this younger part that still needs some attention or is still hurting. 
And when we hurt ourselves versus like with an eating disorder, it's like going back and like poking at that wound. And that's why I say eating disorders are functioning for us because it's the reminding us that we need to go back and take care of a part. For me, I needed to go back and just heal that 13 year old that felt like she wasn't enough just as she was. I needed to go back and give her assurance that she doesn't need to go on years and years of self-destruction and losing herself in order to be okay. And I think that's like the going back and, and reprogramming those parts that are like stuck. They're just stuck. It's, it's inner child work. It's parts work. It's who's still needing something that I haven't tended to. And can we bring them back all together? Now can we integrate ourselves? And that's, that's recovery is full integration of all of those parts. And it doesn't mean that we love all those parts, right? You said they're shadow parts. We all have shadow parts. We don't have to be in love with all of our parts, but I like to say, can we invite all of our parts to the dinner table? Can they just sit together? They don't have to get along. They can have arguments, but can they be okay being there together and knowing like they're all welcome at the dinner table? That's ultimately the goal there. You have a sort of four things to think about if you have an unhealthy relationship with food, which I really liked and I'd like to go through. The first one is curiosity. So tell us about curiosity. How do you know you have an unhealthy relationship with food? That's the question that my clients come to me with, or I ask them and they already know. I'm like, how do you know? Well, they're feeling really you know, negative about themselves or lying to their partners or all of these things. And then, so the first part there is, okay, let's no judgment here. Take away the judgment. Be curious about how you know you're struggling. And then can we identify the story? How did we get here? And again, that goes back to the curiosity of like, what could be going on underneath possibly that this unhealthy relationship with food is again, trying to poke at and remind you, can we go tend to that? Because something is coming up for you. And it feels like something in curiosity of sort of challenging some of the myths about certain foods and what is right and what is wrong as well. Do we right. have to be as thin as that? Is it really that healthy? Well, yeah, exactly. Going back to the list, like what are your diet rules or things that you've internalized that maybe you don't even realize? These are thrown at us from the television, from social media, which is a bigger and bigger problem with this from all over the place. And we don't always realize that we've internalized these things, but we're acting them out. And so the curiosity, like you said, is, okay, you feel like you need to be the same body size and shape as this person you saw on social media. First of all, is that even possible? Because we are genetically programmed. We get our our body shape from our family, from our parents. There's environmental factors, but more than anything, you, you are how you are. And trying to manipulate that is a lifetime of pain. <laughs> and if you sort of have rules for yourself, like, for example, you know, I was a 32 waist when I was at university. And that mm-hmm. sort of feeling that, well, it's sort of okay to go up to 34, but, you know, what about 36? Where does that come from? And do you have to have the same rules at 62 as you had at 22? No, but that's diet culture might say that to you. This is where plastic surgery can come in too. Like at 60, you need to look the same as you did at 30. And that's not healthy or or possible. Or, you know, again, it can go into dysmorphia, which is a distorted perception of yourself, feeling like you need to look a certain way or 
but you don't and you can't. And so those are limiting as well. So let's look at the next one, which is practice acceptance. Mm-hmm. Now, this feels really important. <laughs> I think that's the bottom line here, practice acceptance and self-compassion. But again, that goes back to what are the pieces that you feel like you need to change and what can you change and why? Yes, you want to have a healthier relationship with food. We're all on the same page there. You can change that. But when you're eating more intuitively, your body might go to the place where it feels best. That's the goal. But that also might be different from where your diet mindset tells you your body needs to be. And so the recovery journey is about accepting all of this, accepting where your body feels best, accepting what foods and how you like to eat, whatever that looks like, accepting yourself. You know, this is emotionally as well, accepting who you are, your personality, your temperament. For me, I had to accept I was a very sensitive, empathetic person. I didn't want to be a therapist when I was, I, I did not. I, I, I knew therapy benefited me greatly, but I didn't want to be a therapist through my recovery. Why it was not? only years later. I don't, I wasn't opposed to it necessarily, but it wasn't like my goal. I was interested in European history and French and all, I traveled a lot and that was kind of my passion at the time. I think I was so immersed in the world of therapy and eating disorders while I was going through recovery. I, I was done with it, <laughs> but but full, when I was fully recovered, probably it was probably about five years after that, I felt ready to come home to myself and decide, oh, this is actually where I'm meant to be. So I had to accept these parts that I didn't necessarily, that I told myself were not good parts. I had to learn to accept that. And the next part is compassion. That's really difficult because often we have a very negative voice inside our heads. How do you mm-hmm. deal with that negative voice? This is the hardest part of recovery is the eating disorder voice. The eating disorder voice is the critic voice. It's the shadow voice. It's the part that's telling you you're not good enough, that you need to perform these behaviors in order to be accepted or okay or whatever your wound is needing, you know? And so this is again very challenging, but I try to help people see it like, do you notice the way that you're talking to yourself? Do you notice the way that this eating disorder is talking to you? can you find compassion for that part that's hurting there? Like that's getting beat up. And I try to help have these parts have sort of a dialogue, you could say, separating them out. That the eating disorder is is a part that's hurting and needing attention, but it's also really destructive. And so finding compassion for all of these parts is so hard, like you said. But one of the questions I ask people is, would you talk to your best friend, your husband, your daughter, the way that you're talking to yourself right now. And, and most the answer of the time is, is always no. no. <laughs> no. <laughs> I know, right? And and so it's like, how would you talk to your best friend if they came to you and said, I'm really struggling right now? Would you say, well, just go Get with do the something so, go do something self-destructive because you deserve that? No. You would sit down with them and talk to them. Give them a hug. Be there for them. That's the way that I try to help people. Can you do that for yourself? This is a very hard part, <laughs> but essential. And the final one is really see yourself. Mm -hmm. What do you mean by really see yourself? It comes hand in hand, I feel like, with the acceptance piece of the imperfection of ourselves that an eating disorder might tell us we need to look and be a certain way, be perfect, quote unquote, and none of us is. So the seeing yourself is being there, being okay with yourself in all of these parts. Again, like having these parts come to the dinner table and 
some being louder than others at certain times or needing more attention. But seeing that all of you is okay. All of you is valid and worthy. And however you look, however your body looks, however you you know, express yourself. I've seen so many people like not change, but find themselves through recovery and mm. become louder or become, of course, like more lively. And sometimes their family members or friends are like, whoa, where did that come from? And it's like, that's them and that's beautiful. And, and so it's seeing yourself as you are without this destructive behavior and having your family or your support system see you that way as well. And you've mentioned it once already, but I think we want to sort of look at it a bit closer. What you're aiming for is intuitive eating. Now, what Mm -hmm. is intuitive eating? Intuitive eating is truly listening to your hunger, uh, your hunger and fullness cues, your body's needs, not just with food, but sleep, water, exercise, just being in tune with all of the needs and messages and and, and, urges of your body. The intuitive eating piece also incorporates the emotions that you are experiencing at the same time. And I want to say like this is a little controversial, but emotional eating is not a bad thing. I know you hear that all over the place like don't eat emotionally. There's nothing wrong with emotional eating as long as you are aware of what you're doing and like you had a hard day and you want to go get an ice cream cone. That's fine. Go do that. That, that can actually make you feel better. The emotional eating gets out of control when it's not, we're not conscious of it, where you're depressed, you're feeling out of control in so many parts of your life and you binge eat, or you just, you're not even aware that you're eating. That's the destructive part of emotional eating. But intuitive eating is being in touch with, what am I feeling? I'm happy. You mentioned food equals love. Yes, it does. Sitting at the dinner table with your whole extended family and having a family meal that's so happy and loving. And that's how people show love. That's beautiful. So being in touch with what am I feeling and how am I eating or listening to my body? That's the basis of intuitive eating. There's a whole book, there's a whole movement lifestyle, you could say, that in recovery, the goal is intuitive eating. And so I encourage people to look more into that if they're interested in it. So you found a link between eating disorders and shame related to infertility and the baby blues. Yeah. So as you can gather, most of what I do is based on my own personal experiences. And I struggled with infertility and uh, had two miscarriages when I was trying to, uh, my husband and I were trying to have a baby. This was about six, seven years ago. And um, it was devastating. And Mm. miscarriages and pregnancy loss and infertility is another thing that people don't talk about very much. And I thought I was all alone in this and that nobody had gone through this. And I was, my old voice came back and said, well, maybe you messed up your body enough to not be able to have children through your eating disorder. And um, that was awful. Shameful. That was, I knew that I knew I was healthy. I, there was no indication in any sense that it, I was unhealthy to not be able to have a child, but that's where this disordered thinking can come and just make you feel really awful about yourself. So, luckily, I, I did have my daughter about a year after that and is the love of my life. But through that process and postpartum, I started to wonder more about this like, what is the connection between eating disorders and infertility? And I looked into research. There wasn't a lot of research. So I started to do my own research and 
I just put it out there in kind of my networks. Who's had experience with this? I don't know anybody. People started coming out of the woodworks telling me about their experiences. And I spoke at a conference here in Denver and a publisher was there and said, we're really interested in this topic. We don't know much about it. And so asked me to write a book for them. That's kind of how that happened. It was a little random or organic, I guess you could say. But in 2019, my book was published and it has a lot of case studies in it of these people that I talked to. Explores the intersection of people who have had eating disorders, such as myself, and struggle with fertility issues or, or pregnancy loss. And then it also explores people who are currently struggling with an eating disorder and get pregnant. And there's a high rate of that, actually. And through the pregnancy, just the health, the mental health, and then postpartum, uh, interesting fact is that during pregnancy, many eating disorders go into remission because the mom is feeling, you know, naturally so, wanting to take care of her body to nurture that child, which is great. But that can also be a false remission most of the time. Up to 75% of women in that category will relapse again after postpartum because, you know, they didn't really work through things. And also postpartum is so stressful. So there's a lot of complexities there, but that's sort of how I came to do that. And and then the bottom line is that if you are fully healthy, there's no reason that you should have any complications with pregnancy that are related to an eating disorder. There could be other reasons that you could have complications, but not related to your past eating disorder. That you discovered while trying to write the book that you are a recovering perfectionist. (laughs) Oh, I call myself that. I probably will for the rest of my life, yes. The book I call my second child, it was very, very stressful and busy. And I had a, what, she was two, three at the time while I was writing it. So, and I was working at my private practice full time as well. So it was, it was a lot. And I felt like I gave birth again, but it, was such a beautiful process. And I learned that it's not going to be perfect. You know, my book, my anything, and that's fine. I just wanted it to be out there for people to know it's they're not alone and there's ways to get through that experience. Your final message that I want to shine a light onto is you can recover from an eating disorder, but you didn't fully believe it for a long time yourself. Well, I struggled for about nine or 10 years. And that's unfortunately kind of a common experience that people struggle for a very long time because there's shame, there's stigma, and also people aren't ready to let it go. And I think you have to go really deep to get to the bottom of it. And that takes time, doesn't it? It takes time. Early intervention is the key. I say that to a lot of the parents of teens that I work with who are freaked out. I said, it's great you're getting her in now, if you can talk about it early. I do believe that full recovery is possible. It's something that people will always be living with. Like for me, I had anxiety underneath my eating disorder. I still have anxiety that I'm managing, but it's not fully gone and I'm not using my eating disorder anymore, but I am aware of my mental health because of it. And I think it's a beautiful thing, honestly. It helps me become way more aware than I might have been without my eating disorder. And in the series of The Meaningful Life, we have a program on infertility issues. We also have one on uh, body image. So if you found either of those two topics interesting, have a look. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, 
and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. One of the advantages of becoming a supporter of The Meaningful Life, beyond the fact that I will love you forever, um, (laughs) is that you can write in uh, a letter. And I thought this one was a particularly good one to discuss with you, Kate. My daughter has always been difficult and needed lots of attention and support. However, since she's reached 15, the pressures of exams and cruel comments from so-called friends has made things much worse, and I'm concerned that she's developing an eating disorder. I've taken her to see a lady doctor at our practice who is very understanding, and I think my daughter could talk to her. She's given her lots of fact sheets and the invitation to go back again. It's all positive, but I wonder if it's enough. Unfortunately, three months ago, I was completely blindsided when I discovered that my husband was having a sexting relationship a new word for me, with a work colleague. To say I'm devastated would be an understatement. I'm having all these feelings of not being good enough, and obviously I'm comparing myself with this woman who is incidentally is younger and has not had kids. So what hope have I got of measuring up? It is so unfair. Needless to say, I'm also feeling guilty that I have been focusing on my own stuff and my daughter's problems have slipped off my radar. I'm also angry with my husband that he's so selfish and can only think of his stupid needs. I've caught myself commenting to myself on what other women are putting in their supermarket trolleys. In my sane moments, I know this is dangerously close to what my daughter and her friends are doing at school, which really drives me to a dark place. Any thoughts, Kate? I feel <laughs> feel for her. Sounds like she's she has a lot going on and a lot of things thrown at her all at once that she wasn't aware of, wasn't predicting. Also, we've been talking about like wounds and and past experiences, and maybe this experience of feeling upset at her husband and also worried about her daughters bringing up past feelings for her of like comparison or insecurity. And I feel for her. (laughs) It's a lot to try to cope with all at once. And I think that some of the things that she's feeling, I think we need to tell her that this is sort of normal and to accept yourself at the moment, because, you know, you are going to be all over the place after this sort of kind of um, discovery and the sort of sense of you've got to get it, pull it all together, got to sort it all out is actually making everything much worse. Yeah, again, like trying to be in control of everything or be perfect at everything is it's okay. Like you can't. I think she's doing what she can. I mean, helping her daughter get to a doctor and getting her information and just starting to talk about it, honestly, right? Talking about it, being aware of it, while also having so much going on personally, you're not gonna be perfect. <laughs> There's no way. Now, I don't want to talk to her daughter about the problems in her marriage because the daughter really wants to be protected from that. But that sort of sense of, which I think is, I think we've all looked at what other people have put in their supermarket trolley and gone, ooh, it's a very natural sort of human reaction. And I wonder if it's actually worthwhile talking about that sort of kind of stuff with her daughter, that there's some sort of kind of empathy and understanding about it. Yeah. I think just trying to normalize that that happens. We all probably have done that at some point in our lives, compared or or criticized ourselves or others 
based on some kind of pain that we're feeling internally. That's human, right? We're all human and just trying to identify that. And the other thing I would say very strongly is I feel that you're trying to look after everybody else. You're looking after your daughter. I get the sense that uh, you're trying to sort your husband out as well. And I'm wondering who's looking after you. What support are you getting? Do you That's feel alone? You know, do you have some unhelpful ideas that might need to be challenged? I feel like shame and secrecy maybe is involved here of, of feeling like your husband is having a sexting relationship. Your daughter is struggling with an eating disorder. Both of those things are shameful. And like you were saying, who can she talk to? Who can she talk to to see she's not alone and that there's a lot of support available and she can get through this with support. There's a lot of people out there that, you know, probably could relate exactly to what she's going through. And there's certainly groups for people who are dealing with infidelity. I assume there's also groups for parents of children with eating disorders as well. Am I right about that? There are. And actually, there's a lot that are virtual now. I work with a wonderful organization that's based here in Denver, Colorado. It's called the Eating Disorder Foundation, and they provide support groups virtually. And we have actually had people from all over the world join, and there's some for family members as well. There's a variety of groups. So that's kind of a, a bonus there that she or her daughter, they could get support that way too. So look into getting support because... You are not alone. I think a lot of people will mm -hmm. recognise a lot of the feelings that you've been talking about. Mm -hmm. So, Kate, thank you very much for being my witness on The Meaningful Life. We now have to ask the question, what makes your life meaningful? <laughs> I've been thinking a lot about this. It's been a good uh, provocation, you could say, for me. Uh, my daughter, based on everything that I've been through, and with the infertility, the miscarriages, I dedicated my book to my daughter. She makes my life meaningful and she's shown me that I can get through anything. And I try my best. I'm not perfect, of course, but try my best to be attentive and supportive and open and curious with her. Seeing her learning to ride her bike, she just started to learn her bike without training wheels, is it's just a beautiful experience. So being with her is number one. Being a mother and being a perfectionist, they're two things that really can't go together. You have to, <laughs> you have to deal with, with failure and things not going to plan, really, don't you? Oh, yeah. She's taught me a lot about that and giving in. Choose your battles, basically. Can't control a five-year-old. So, <laughs> And I think you were going to say the other thing that gives your life meaning is your work. Yes, yes. I love my work. Uh, it's very, very challenging many times, but I love what I do. And I love all of my clients, the ones that struggle, the ones that are still struggling. And of course, the ones that are able to find that part of themselves that is stronger, tougher than the eating disorder and empower that part and get through the recovery process. It's so beautiful to watch that and to see them come out of that. And that is why I do what I do. And I'm so grateful. And I love the way you say that you love your clients, that you're not uh, ashamed or afraid to say that. I think that's really beautiful. Yeah. I mean, even the toughest ones are, they teach, everybody teaches me too. So I'm always learning and growing and that's part of this profession. 
So this is where the conversation ends for most people. But if you're a member of our supporters circle, you'll have a chance to hear more because we go on and we will talk about what we've both learnt or what's been pointed up to us by this conversation. And Kate is going to share with me the three things she knows deep down to be true. So if you want to find out what those are and hear more of this conversation, here's the details. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Colick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.